Welcome back to Inspiring Neighbors Podcast, where we showcase seemingly ordinary people with extraordinary stories. And speaking of extraordinary stories, what an amazing guest we had on today, Angela. Holy moly, yeah. Say that again. He's oh, just such an inspiration. Uh, his name is Stephen Berendret, and he recently published his first book called Forgiveness is Freedom. How I Overcame Life Challenges to Thrive and Succeed, and How You Can Too. And the book goes into incredible detail about some very hard stories and life experiences that he's, he's survived. Um, he starts right at the beginning when he's seven years old and works through some traumatizing and abusive events through most the majority of his childhood. And I think what is amazing for us to hear was the positivity mm-hmm. and the knowingness in himself, like the confidence he had in himself to come out of that and that he deserves something amazing. And he has built an amazing life. Absolutely, Trevor. No, I agree. And uh, you, you can also very interesting and unexpected is the balance that you find in, in in the way he talks about his life as well as through the book that there is this trauma, there is this very... Um, tough periods that he went through tough relationships but at the same time there's always so much positivity like you said but it's so much goodness of people and goodness of himself i guess to to be able to figure out how to make himself the best how to help others how to grow his impact and uh it was it was great to meet him he was a lovely person to get to know and very open and just told us uh Lots of lessons that he's learned through his life and such very uh, colorful stories that I won't forget about. Yeah. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. And for everyone out there, please enjoy Stephen Berendret. Let's talk to our neighbors, because everyone can inspire the Inspiring Neighbors podcast like Jafar. At some point, you have to learn to cut off the book, right? You have to finish the book. And and I, I think that's something that uh, I could have just kept writing and, and throwed anecdotes and stories out all the time. But at some point, you have to sort of decide where you're going to finish this book. And for me, it was it became a thought of, okay, I'll finish this book because I now know what I'm going to do on my next book. So pretty yeah. uh, positive thinking, yes. but that's, uh, that's kind of where I went with it. So. That's that's an exciting thought. I read that part in the book. You, you mentioned you teased us with the book too, so I'm excited. I'll Good. be waiting in line at chapters for my copy. Um, Good. Appreciate so that. Before we get too much into that, I just wanted to say welcome. Welcome, Steve. We have been very excited to have you on. Um, you have published a book called Forgiveness is Freedom. Uh, it's out now and available on Amazon. And it is an amazing memoir and recount of Steve's life starting from early childhood to kind of where he currently is now. Uh, you kind of did it. I noticed there's there's parts of it, right? There's there's the memoir portion of it. And then towards the end of the book, there's kind of a lessons learned. And here's, here's some lessons I'd like to part on the reader. Was that always kind of the plan for you? No, I will say it wasn't. I mean, initially, this book has been probably 50 years in the making, right? I mean, from the the age of uh, seven, when my mom passed away, of course, I didn't know I'd be writing a book then, of course. But um, over the years, as I've shared my story with 
others throughout my life. Uh, so many people kept saying, well, you have to write a book about that. That's such a great story. And of course, it's always stuck with me. And as I, I guess in my older age, which will be 60 this June, uh, I decided it was time to seriously you know, consider it. And my wife was the one that prompted me about a year ago at this point in time, uh, said, you know, there's a working there's a writer's uh, course going on here near Barrie. You should sign up for it. And I thought, eh, maybe I will. The COVID was here, right? We we seem to be working more yeah. from home. And I sort of set up a nice office setting. So I thought, hey, you know, maybe I can do that. So I did. Uh, arguably the best thing I've done in, in most recent years, that's for sure. Um, I yeah. found that the writing course became, um, <laughs> I, I guess I'll share with, with Alex and Marcy, I said it was the cheapest form of um, uh, therapy that I've ever had in my life. Um, so it really opened my mind way beyond where I thought I would actually take this book. Um, yeah. very cathartic journey for me. Right. I mean, it was, um, I started writing in the first, uh, several pages just rolled off, right. Because it was stuck in my mm-hmm. mind for so many years and I just couldn't yeah. wait to get it out. And, uh, of course, Marcy and Alex helped me hone that a little bit better and tightened up some of the sentences and run-ons and things about that nature. But mm-hmm. for the most part, yeah. it was such a journey of um, memories that I had compressed for or suppressed for so long. And I'd be coming out of my office going and reading part of it to my wife, Sandra, and said, you know, how does this sound? Well, I'd be bawling. I was bawling. Yeah. I was coming out happy. I was laughter. And there's so many emotions from it. But uh, what a journey it has been, yeah. You answered one of my questions, actually. I was going to ask if it was a cathartic journey. I imagine it was very much so. Um, and tough at some parts, right? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, how I know it's very cathartic is that even today as I flip through the book, I wrote it, right? I mean, it's not a ghost-written book. It's from my heart. And there yeah. are still passages that I struggle to get through without uh, mm-hmm. d- deep emotion and, and tears. Uh, and yeah. I, I guess that just tells me that it did come from my heart and uh they're still oddly very fresh at times right um yeah. but from from another standpoint i guess my tears tend to come from i could probably cry at the drop of a hat if you knew who i really was so that may not be surprising <laughs> to, to, to some that hear this but at the end of the day uh my happiness and humbleness comes from the fact that i think some of the words that are on these pages uh, resonate with others that hopefully will change their life, right, for the better. And that's mm-hmm. always been a very yeah. deep personal goal that sort of revealed itself as I began, began writing this this book. So that's just a, a, an extra win for me uh, personally, but it has become really my motive beyond uh, anything else to write more and speak more. Uh, about uh, the opportunities that are, you know, in in life, just by being a leader to being resilient and things of that nature that I write about. Yeah, that's amazing. I was going to say, I feel it's a very uh, interesting experience to be chatting with you because we've interviewed people before that we didn't really know at all. And we've interviewed people that we're close to and somehow we think we know anyway before we start chatting deeply about their lives. But um, for you, I feel like I've lived your life, you know, bits and pieces of your life with you. And and that's a really interesting thing to be meeting you after I feel like I know so much uh, very like... I don't know, um, very personal details of your life. So it must, I don't know if it's hard for you to be so open, you know, with the world about these very personal experiences. And I think uh, what's interesting, you know, sometimes I think about 
when you watch a movie with someone else and you kind of like, you feel like you've lived that experience together. And I feel like that about mm -hmm. so many images of your book, like you describe them so well, I feel like I was there. So uh, that that's very, uh, you know, thank you for sharing that because I don't think it's, it's easy to be that yeah. open. Yeah. Yeah. I, thank you very much for that. Those words is very uh, generous of you. I, I, I think two things come from that is, is, I've always been a big believer that being vulnerable uh, builds trust. I, I actually coach to that a lot. Any of the leaders that I'm working with, I've said it over and over, is in order to build trust with your team, you have to be somewhat vulnerable. Now, in my case, I might might have opened up quite a bit more than others would, um, but I, I'm very proud of where I came from, despite some of the traumas and, and tribulations that that uh, you can read about, but from that, from that trauma and from those lessons that I had to learn and still am learning, um, I've just been able, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm just blessed to be able to recognize the good that came out of all of the, the difficulty. Right. And I, I've said it so many times to other people that have asked me this question is, well, or they'll say, Oh, it's too bad. You went through all that. Well, no, it really isn't. It's, it's, it's who I am today. And, and I'm a better person because of it. So I, I'm a, vi a very big believer that while I don't really like to have anyone go through any sort of trauma in their life, it'd be lovely if it was all rainbows and sunshine. But the fact is that <laughs> it's not. And we have to go through difficulties to be able to build ourselves. It builds character um, and things of that. So for me, it certainly built me into who I am. And the leadership was only part of a survival instinct initially. And then it just became something that I I felt that uh, I was ab able to build a better life for myself. And that, that was one thing that I really took out of a lot of this over the years is that leadership for me initially was just about me. I was uh, surviving and I was doing more than surviving as I started growing into my, my career. And it is such a blessing and so real and so important for us leaders to recognize and learn that leadership is letting go of ourselves and focusing on others, right? It's, I write about that specifically. And that is what I think many leaders tend to forget. We're all building our career. We're trying to get ahead. We try to want to talk to the right people. And I've said it before, you know, when you go into a new organization with a job or anything like that, find the COIs, your centers of influence right as quickly as you can. And, and that's a good idea. But you're really, uh, if you're going to be the, a true and effective leader, you've got to not do that for yourself, but know all these resources available to you. So that allows you to help others. And that's really, really important, in my opinion. It's easy to see the selfishness in leaders. And the ones that really stand out are the ones that they care so much about the growth of the person they're leading. And I think that that makes a huge difference. So I appreciate yeah, you very sure. much for even just sharing that. Um, at the risk of making this a four or five hour episode, I'd, I'd like to start if you are okay with it, just to kind of take a quick, quick journey, whirlwind journey through starting with your, uh, childhood. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I said, just a bit ago, I mean, it is an open book and I am an open book. And if, again, if you know me, my heart has always been on my sleeve. So writing a book, uh, that, that does put myself out there and is fairly vulnerable uh, is, is really second nature for me. It wasn't that difficult. Um, yeah. And I, as I start, you know, I, 
started in uh, very humble beginnings, right? I mean, my mother, uh, which you can read about, was a, a very sick woman in the sense that she was dealing with cancer herself at a very young age. Um, her entire family was uh, riddled with the same cancer and it all passed uh, at a very young age, well before her. And, you know, it struck me as I wrote this book more so than ever at any time in my life, although it passed through my mind from time to time, what what would she have been thinking, right? I mean, here's a young yeah. woman who is in, in 30, 31 years old and, and, of course, was dealing with cancer probably before that. So I'll say at least probably within the, at least the 10 years or maybe more years ahead of that. So she's 16 years old when she's first married and has her first ch child. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, knowing that she's got cancer, knowing that it's, you know, knowing, seeing her brother and her sister and knowing her mother had all passed from the same disease. Um, what yeah. was she thinking, right? Six children, first of all, <laughs> Having six children at any point in time is crazy these days, particularly. But <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was just going to make the quick statement that even just seeing a mother create six children within the span of, I think, seven years. Yeah. Even just that alone displays the strength of your mother. And yeah. What a power. Yeah. And I, she, I, I like to think was. that I got some of her strength from that. But in any event, I mean, here we were a, a very uh, poor family. Uh, her husband, who was um, uh, in jail most of his entire life for for various, uh, mostly because of his alcoholism, but the, the things that led from alcoholism to some of his petty crimes and so on. So, you know, just mm -hmm. knowing that, I, I'm just amazed at her own resilience uh, that she showed in the face of death. And, and, uh, yeah. we knew, we knew nothing any worse for wear, right? I mean, we just knew that my mom was home and wasn't sick. We weren't at the orphanage, but as you, you'll read about in the book, I mean, even while she was alive, we were in the orphanage. And then when she got out, we'd go back home and be with her for a while. And we kind of got, that was kind of normal for us, right? And, and, and sort of mm -hmm. developing as a family or, or dysfunctionally or not, it's just the way it was. Um, but we were happy. Right, we were all happy in in the way that we were growing up, and and we relied on each other very much. So, from that perspective, that was kind of unique and 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 wonderful. So, but in through all that, and this is what amazes me, um, as I reflected on my life at even at that early age, I write about the fact that. I had these survival instincts, right? I mean, I knew yeah. we had no money and uh, I knew there was no way I was just going to have, you know, easy money come up to, to me and allow me to have all the things that I'd like. But so I, mm -hmm. I learned to sell coat hangers and I have a very neat story about that. And, and I, even to this day, I'm amazed like at that age, <laughs> where did that come from? But I learned that the, you know, the laundromat or the local dry cleaners would have paid me two pennies per, per, hanger to deliver to him so you know there i was trying to collect coat hangers to make enough money to help in as i write in the book help money get better right and what a wonderful uh, opportunity for me to make me feel like i'm you know do, contributing so um i believe that was probably my f probably my first foray into entrepreneurship i i i think and um i from that it was such a a wonderful experience for me to feel that i was actually doing something on my own uh, contributing on my own. And that just stuck with me. And I, I, as crazy as it might sound, even at that age of six years old, I believe that that sort of mindset was what carried me through so much of my life throughout the years. So it was, uh, mm -hmm. 
quite quite a journey, but one that I'm glad I went through. That you mentioned that mindset. I'm glad you brought it up. Is that something you think that you were just born with, or did somebody instill that in you at a very young age? Do you think? Yeah, you know, Trevor, I'd like to think so, right? I'd like to think somebody must have taught me that. But, you know, I write about in the book that I've always felt very blessed. And I always sort of, I went back after I I learned more about my my life and and more about the ways in which I got here. Um, I thought, you know, God owed me something for taking my mom so early. And uh, I don't know if it was God-given or what it was, but um, I'm just grateful that I, I had that insight to to at least take the positive i guess that's what's really i mean sure i'm not i've been through life i've had negative things happen to me and i've been complaining i've whined and complained and felt sorry for myself but even then at six years old i don't think that was taught to me at all unless i just think it was a god-given um ability that that i'm blessed with but um to take the positive i've always taken the positive high road no matter what what instance we have and and it's always really worked for me i've never wanted to blame anyone for what's happened in my life <laughs> just imagine a 6 year old <laughs> going around yeah i mean i can't imagine my own children i think about that now and i mean i <laughs> when they were 6 i could barely let them out of the house let alone me running up and down the street in london ontario at the time but you know like in every situation there's at least you know two two ways to look at it and one of them's positive right that was what kind of happened with me at that point in time i could have just cried and and whined and complained and nothing's happened i don't have the toys i want i sure as heck didn't have the the uh clothes that i wanted to wear like all the other kids and stuff but i mean i just did what i needed to do and it worked out really well what i ended up getting wasn't a, a fortune or anything like that but it was a life lesson that stuck with me for many many years and i've told that story Oh, hundreds and hundreds of times, um, not not to reflect upon myself, but to allow others to reflect upon themselves about what they could do about the situation they're in, right? And it's it's worked out really well. Yeah, it reveals itself multiple times throughout your story in your book that you're able to find the positive in terrible situations, like very traumatic situations. You're still able to see the positive, and even in the people that aren't being kind to you, you're able to see positive things within them. And it's at that age, I hear an anomaly. One of the things that I have seen over and over in my life, and I see more of it as I'm getting older, that there are so many of us that have stories that um, have impacted negatively or would have definitely been more negative in our life. But the resilience and the positive mindset is what made the difference in, in us being able to achieve a better life for ourselves and so doing achieve a better life for those around us and that's really the simplicity of it all right Mm -hmm. like it's it's easy to say sorry but it's easy for me to say like have a positive outlook based on you know i've uh, had a pretty nice life like pretty blessed you know so everybody has challenges everybody has difficulties but um it's always relative to who right like there's there's when i see in your story that you say you had to walk two hours to go home because you you wouldn't be offered a drive that was pretty simple of a a thing that could have been done for you. But instead you had to, you're forced to walk two hours home every day. And then the next sentence you're saying, it was great because I got to reflect about my life and what I wanted to do and, and who I was. And like, it's so quickly to see the positive side of things of, of things that 
especially at that age, would be really hard to get over, right? To just not mm. not resent, not not just be upset about, I think. I want to turn into your comment earlier, because I'm really glad you said how you tried to impart this lesson on others, because having been born with it, it's easy to take it for granted. Yeah. And yeah. for me, I've come to understand that how grateful I should be for my personal positive outlook that comes naturally to me. But I'm curious from your mentor, mentoring others and sharing your story, what's your viewpoint on being able to teach that or, or somebody who maybe that doesn't come as naturally to them? Can they find their way to have a more positive outlook on life? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a very good question. I mean, every, as I said at the beginning, you know, true leadership is letting go of ourselves and focusing on others. And I, I guess from my humble beginnings and all the things that I've gone through in life, part of some of which I did on my own and much of which I did because of other people, which I write about some of those people that impacted my life and pivoted me from where I was maybe going to head into where I ended up going. Right. And, and I think that's, to me, it became just a blessing. It, it became something for me to realize that I had been given a gift in life. Um, I had, found a way to uh, make a positive impact on my personal life. And why wouldn't I want to now share those skills and those lessons to others? And it, it's kind of interesting. I went out of my way to try to do this for everybody I could even talk to, meet or whatever, in every circle that I went to. And I realized as I got older that the real positive impact, the real sort of effective way to be a leader is to focus certainly um, – on those that want it, I guess that's the best. I, I, like, I don't mm -hmm. want to say that you're not going to help someone that is over there in the corner because those are the ones you want to draw out from the corner, right? And say, you know, what's happening in your life? You know, does this in, does this make sense to you? Do you want to be part of this? Can I teach you something more? But certainly um, those that want it, you, you pretty much identify with it. I certainly have over my life. I've identified those that want to be better than they are now. And so those are the ones that are just like these gems, right? They're just, oh my goodness, I can't wait to get a hold of this and, and work with it. And I've been really um, lucky to be able to have a number of people in my life like that. And particularly in my role today uh, as a leader in, in, the, uh, in, in, in the job I do today, um, I'm dealing with very talented young individuals that are just blow me away with the talent they have, which I always mm -hmm. kind of laugh and say, you know, they've got, they know much more than I do, but I'm a big believer that also an, an effective leader recognizes you don't have to know everything. And I've always mm -hmm. sort of said, hire your weakness. Um, and that's really important for us to realize is that you, you just don't have to know everything. But, but going back to your, your, your um, question, Angela is um, it, it's easy to help those that want to help themselves or get better and you just start to impart lessons yeah and really what it is is we've got to stop wagging our fingers when you're a coach and a mentor it can't be like a, the old school teacher i don't mean to offend any teachers because teachers today i can't believe how well how well they do in the environment they're in but um mm. You know, we don't want to wag our fingers and say, you know, you're doing it wrong or, or you know, you got to do it my way. It's it's so important to just open up the invitation to consider this other, you know, mindset, right? And from that perspective, yeah. you're, you're allowing them to become that mindset thinking, right? As opposed to mm -hmm. just taking orders. 
because a, a yeah. developing leaders doesn't mean telling them the way you're doing things. Developing a leader is so important to invite them to think differently. And that is a critical, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I think, a critical point that I like to make there that it, it doesn't, otherwise we're just box, ticking boxes, right? That's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. Tick this one because yeah. I told you to. Oh, good, good, good for you. You ticked all my boxes correctly. Well, you know, my <laughs> boxes may not be right for the next uh, environment, right? Yeah, I think yeah. the the idea of asking questions, getting people to think on their own, come to conclusions that, and sometimes it's like they come to different conclusions that you would have come to, and you know, you may maybe you learn as well, but still, it's it's a more interesting path. Yeah, yeah, it's a very cool outlook. So you're seven years old when when your mom passes away, right? Yeah. And then at that age, you and your five siblings are placed into the foster care system in Ontario? That's correct. You mentioned in your book, um, there are feelings that, there are emotions that come along with being a foster child. And one of them was guilt. And I wanted to ask you, what causes the feeling of guilt um, when you're an orphan? Yeah, I, probably uh, a more accurate uh, word for that would, would be uh, almost embarrassed or a stigma attached to, to, to gotcha. being in an orphanage and, and yeah. even being adopted, right? I mean, um, uh, for, for so long when you're kind of at that young age and you're in an orphanage, you know when you're in the orphanage you don't belong perhaps anywhere. You're just trying to find mm-hmm. a place, right? And I remember feeling the same thing. You're in there with a whole bunch of other kids. And I think I, I, I write about two different orphanages, two very different experiences. One was very different yeah. than the other. But you're still in the same sort of grouping, if you will, of a whole bunch of um, what, what I will call, a, as an adult, I, I, I would call it more a dysfunctional setting a dysfunctional environment mm-hmm. it's not a natural environment right you're 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 you might as well be in the hospital and that's kind of what the one i felt like that it felt very much like an institutional hospital um but so so the guilt was was probably more tantamount to a, a, a an embarrassment stigma yeah i i can appreciate that i i it's hard as angela um mentioned it's hard to put yourself in those shoes having not experienced it and i i could only imagine as i was reading these these emotions that come up i think um since we're talking about the whole adoption or the even the orphanage and today orphanages aren't really orphanages like they were back in the uh, 60s and 70s when i was there i mean we have women's mm-hmm. shelter which i think um from community based shelters and and the like of that there's far better outreach and far better support than there ever has been uh, I happen to know a little bit about that here locally in my own community, but but I, I think it's important that um, any adoptee recognizes and embraces the fact that when you're adopted, you are special. And mm-hmm. a lot of us don't feel that way initially, right? We feel we're we're uh, spoiled goods uh, or something of that nature in many cases, not all cases, I guess, but certainly in many of the cases. And I think I have come to learn, and I would certainly, I'm hoping to speak uh, further with Children's Aid Society and groups and the like of that, women's shelter and et cetera, to just be very mindful that, you know what, you are very special. If when you are adopted, you are a very special individual, not because you got adopted, but because 
someone else who doesn't know you from anywhere that is not biologically attached to you in any way has chosen to bring you into their life and, and love you and nurture you. Now, my story was a little different. Those were the questions and observations I had as a child wondering, why don't you love me like you love your own kid? I can see it myself, what's happening. And uh, yeah. I struggled with that, you know, as, as you can read in the book. But um, I think mm -hmm. it's really important to, to allow every adoptee to embrace the fact that they are special and to allow them to find that reason why. Wow, what a, what a powerful statement to make. The two orphanages you talk about, one is called, you called it the safe house. And I can't, is it the chaos house, the, the other one that you called it? <laughs> it could be. Uh, but I, uh, I, of course, I didn't want to name them because of copyright and et cetera. But uh, the rough house and yeah. the safe house. <laughs> the rough house. But right. the chaos, <laughs> the rough house was very chaotic, yes. <laughs> I loved the stories, especially from the rough house, just. The way you tell them, and like I could just, like Angela said, I could imagine myself just watching this this situations unfold that you talk about. Yeah, thank you. If if it leads into the whole, you know, helpless orphan or adopted mm -hmm. child with you know with the Berendrecht family that I became adopted into, I mean, yeah, I I mm -hmm. was very much not in control, right? I mean, I had very little to no control. And that was probably the most difficult part of my life ever. Um, especially when I got a little older and realized I needed that control to actually get out of a really bad situation and try mm -hmm. to make my life better. And it was like hell. It was, it was, um, uh, it was almost like a prison. Right. And, and I do remember thinking that I think it was better at the orphanage than it is here right now. Um, while I was going through a lot of those difficult times with the with the uh, my adopted parents. So how long how long was it the period that you spent in the orphan system? At the orphanage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna say uh, from the age of four, my mom was still alive. As I mentioned to you, we would go back and forth. When she got better, we'd get out and we'd go back and uh, because being wards of the province, and as I mentioned, my our father was actually in the jail system or prison system so mm -hmm. he wasn't around so i guess from the age of four to uh seven uh got officially adopted i think i was around uh, eight, 10 years old um but we ended right. up staying with the baron family for a couple of years uh for testing it out seeing how it was going to work i suppose so i guess in all gotcha. roughly four years yeah. okay so then um, fast forward a bit to you are now adopted into this Berendrett family. Um, you you are one of six children in your family, and five of you get the five younger ones of you get adopted into the family, and the older one I think is Gord. Gord. Um, Gord. Yeah. I guess, for lack of better words, gets left behind at the orphanage. Yeah. What did that feel like? I guess is my question. And did you ever talk to Gord? later on about what he felt in that moment? Yeah, great question. Uh, very, very uh, pivotal moment in all of our lives, all the siblings' lives. Gord was our oldest brother. He was our mm -hmm. caretaker when mom was even alive but sick. Uh, there were many yeah. times we were in the house with just really Gord in charge, really. Um, so mm -hmm. when it came time to go to be adopted, um, and we finally realized initially, I don't remember, I don't remember that was going to happen. It just kind of like, so where's Gord? 
we were kind of heading there and I'm going, yeah. Where, where's Gord? And, uh, back then we called him Gordy, but, uh, anyway, uh, I was devastated. I think we all were, I, I suppose I don't remember asking everyone at that, that point in time, but I know I was, I was, yeah. I was terrified actually. I thought, well, <laughs> who's, who's going to protect me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, and, and then as I got older, uh, I was more angry about it. Right. I was angry, but, but then yeah. when I became more knowledgeable in myself and, and the way, the, the way things go, um, I understood it to some extent, to be fair to the Baron Gretz. in my accounting of in the book, I try to be very honest, but fair. Right. I mean, there, yeah. I, I do see their, I understand now it's not easy to have had their older son, Mike, who would have been the same age as there. And then suddenly the oldest is no longer the oldest. He got two. And I think that would have caused other complications. And certainly the environment that we came from, which was extremely different than the farm, the farm uh, house in, in, in the rural community uh, from, from the orphanage that was a free for all, if you will. So, yeah, I mean, I do reckon, recall being very um angry but scared about the fact gord wasn't coming now i did speak with him mm. later on in life um about it and it was terrible like his his words to me were um i wondered if it was any better for me than it was for you guys when i knew what was going on at the baron with what you were going through um and and i said well how do you mean he said well i mean you have no idea how i was i was all by myself at that point i was the only one left alone to 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 fend for myself you guys all at least went together and i i just was in awe of that i thought oh my god i can't i can't believe he was 13 years old right so at 13 Mm -hmm. years old how does he deal with that right and he had to figure out he he talked to me about sleeping on park benches because he was afraid to go into the group home at that time and and um uh, just, just so many different things that he went through. And here again, there's a good example of me feeling sorry for myself because of the environment that I'm in, but at least I'm in an environment with my other siblings and he's all by himself in a big city, right? Uh, it's just crazy. So, mm-hmm. um, so he had his own, I mean, he should write his own book. I, I told him uh, from his perspective, <laughs> but he hasn't taken that up yet. Yeah. I was just thinking that too. So, yeah. I don't I don't know if you can answer my next question and I don't even know if it's it's something worth discussing but I want to ask it anyways. Um you get adopted into this this family, the Berendrett family. Um Dick and Gwen are your new kind of adopted parents. They it very quickly becomes obvious that they may not have either they didn't consider what adoption of five kids entails. Or they didn't want to do it, but for some reason they did anyways. And my question is, why do you think they did adopt you guys? Do you have any idea why they would have made that decision? Yeah, this has been a question of debate with all of us siblings for years. Um, Mm -hmm. My immediate answer is probably the most unfair answer, and I'll explain why. But my immediate answer, and has been for a number of years, was... We're four strapping boys. They've got a big farm. There are uh, lots of chores to be done. And hey, uh, let's let's bring these kids in. Now that that's the, that's this flip of the tongue answer. Um, so let me expand yeah. on that. 
to be fair to the Berendrets, I think a couple of things. I do think that um, Dick Berendret uh, was a good man on the whole. Um, I think he had positive visions of having a bigger family. And, of course, I don't think his wife Gwen had any inclination, nor could I blame her, to have any more than three children uh, produced. So uh, this was one way to grow a family. And, you know, being of a Dutch descent, I mean, many Dutch families, particularly those that have farms, uh, like to have big families, right? So so I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on the other side of the, the equation and say um, I think he certainly had good intentions initially. Um, I don't think he was remotely prepared for the task that it would take to um, sustain uh, a, a family in, of that size, eight children, three of his own, five of us, right? And five of us were right. all in need of a, a lot of development and repair. Um, mm-hmm. So he left the nurturing, I would say, because he's a very busy farmer and a very big operation uh, with, with Gwen. I happen to believe, mm-hmm. and I've never, to be fair, asked her specifically, um, but I believe that she had no intention. This was way too much for her to take on. And certainly if it was her willingness to consider doing it, it was pretty short-lived in the, the realization that this is nuts. I can't do this. Yeah. And so nurturing left with her and those sort of motherly maternal duties – was just not something she could do. She It was just too much to ask. And I think that was where a lot of the breakdown came from. Certainly from my, mm-hmm. I write about it in my book, that I, all I wanted was a hug. I, I just wanted someone to nurture and hug me and it never came, right? And mm-hmm. for years as I got older, I, I became very cold to it. It was just like, yeah, well, whatever. But at the time, I have to mm-hmm. remember, I, I, I just, I, I mean, I just lost my mother. My dad yeah. wasn't around. I just wanted someone to love me and uh, yeah. and tell me it was going to be okay, but that never came, right? So you build a bit of a tough exterior. Um, but again, I say in my case, very blessed because I built a tough exterior. And yeah, there were times I was probably angry and, and lashed out or whatever. Um, but for the most part, I, I took just took the high road and realized – of all that sort of negativity came, I guess I got to just do this on my, on my own. Right. And mm-hmm. so that's how I became very independent thinker and an independent doer. And so I choose to take the positive out of that and say, well, you know, I mean, if I was, if I was doted over and, and whatnot, maybe I wouldn't have become that way. Right. So, um, in some fashion, I take some solace out of that. Um, but I think on the whole, yes, I think it was, they had, Good intentions going into it, but had no sense of the magnitude of raising eight children in a very busy farm operation that had several different elements to it. And um, it just became too much. And then what happened was, I I write about this in the book, is there were two camps, right? There was the Pearson kids camp, and we were over there. And there was the Berendret camp, and that's where they all were. And it was just a terrible way to grow up. I mean, we might as well have been in an orphanage. So how many years were Mm -hmm. we in an orphanage? I'd say several. But, I mean, yeah, it was just that. And and, um, it was just a tough way to live, right? You're you're constantly barraged with any time something went wrong, that was the Pearson thing coming out of you. Mm -hmm. And anytime yeah. it was right, you know, that was, you know, you're doing the right thing sort of thing. So it, we were sort mm-hmm. of made to grow up with 
where you came from and who you really were. And as I talk about that, I write about that in the book about finding Stephen Pearson again, who I was born, uh, my name born with, uh, was very difficult because you almost say, oh, I don't want to go there because apparently Pearson stuff is all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that I learned that it, it wasn't the case. And, and uh, but that's, that's pretty much what we were forced to, to live with in, at that point in time. Wow. Trevor, uh, one of the questions he was he wanted to ask was, uh, if you ever thought about changing your name, which is a question also that I that came to me, if you ever ever thought about changing your name back out of just feelings of whether it's like spite or love of your original origins or anything like that? Did you? Yes, I did, actually. Um, and of course, uh, my brother, brother Bill, uh, who unfortunately just passed away, actually. Um, and, uh, my brother, Danny, both who were adopted as Baron Gretz, both ran away. And as I write in the book, uh, did change their name back and it made sense back then. And, and I thought about it. I'm, I'm very proud of my, my name. Um, I, I have uncles and nieces and nephews all with the same name who live in, in Southwestern Ontario. And I thought about that for that reason, right? I thought this would be really cool. So in the end, um, it didn't make sense at the time, right? When I really thought about it, I, I thought, okay, I grew up as Stephen Berendrett, right? I mean, from the age of 10 on. So everybody that I knew through my personal and professional career um, all knew me as Steve Berendrett. So I thought, well, if I if I change my name back to Pearson, it's going to be like, Okay, did did Steve Berendrett die, or did like, I haven't heard from him? Uh, uh, you know, so it just it, from a my heart told me, Angela, that yes, I should, and I wanted to, but my practical nature said it just didn't make sense, and I know who I am today, and I don't need to change my name back accordingly. Now, my kids kind of thought that would be neat. What I will share with you is that my one one of my two dogs, I named him Pearson. And uh, so that's, that's what I've got in my family. His name is Pearson, and I, I did that on purpose. So, uh, but that 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 had crossed all of our minds. Um, we have all siblings have come to realize that our name as a Pearson is important, and it does mean something to us. And it is where it is. Even the same with my younger brother Larry. He he's a Baron Red, adopted as such, and he's maintained the same for the same reason. I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. which good question yeah and and you say it's your your heart wanted to go back to pearson i would say it was also your heart that allowed you to stay Berendret. and i'll explain because you made you managed throughout the book i was just amazed every time that you managed to i call in the question i wrote down i called them angels like you were able to find these angels even people that were very close family members to the Baron dress to Dick and Gwen. And you were able to develop these very amazing relationships with these people. And I think it's your heart that was able to do that. And your heart was able to accept that there are good Baron dress out there. <laughs> like you're, you're still close yeah. to, to quite a few of them that you, you speak about in your book. Um, and I think that speaks to your personality again as finding finding these positive people and influences in the midst of uh, from the outside a terrible situation. I, I, I agree with you. I think that is very true. Um, Grandma Baron Gret, which I whom I write 
very affectionately about in my book, which was Dick Berengar's mother. I was very close with her. And you're right. Uh, my His brother's uh, wife, Valerie Berengar, is still a big part of my life even to this day. And and uh, all those sort of things made me probably pulled at my heartstrings for the same reason to say it, it really it is who I am. And it's mm-hmm. who I don't necessarily define myself in that regard, but but um, it is certainly from a practical perspective it made sense. But from yeah, from a heart thing, it was a bit of respect as well for those that are still Barrettes and 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 I I live lived with them to the point that uh, a lot of positive from them came. So yeah, there's mm-hmm. that was probably an easier way for me to just say yeah. Um, it wasn't out of spite. I, I don't think I ever had a spite to say. Because again, if, if if I'm going to do something as dramatic as that, is change my name back out of spite, then to me, you know, they've won. Um, that's mm. how I that's how I see things a lot in life, you know. And um, mm. it may be a bit of a rebellious nature, <laughs> deep pitted in my mind, but um, for the most part, it just it didn't wouldn't have made sense out of spite. Uh, it would have to make sense mm. from my heart, and and then with my heart just came the practical s- specifics about it being just didn't make sense. So. Yeah. I get it. I was just going to add, you mentioned, uh, Trevor, about um, other people in my life, and that sort of moves us further into the book a little bit. Uh, I was very uh, proud. Uh, it was important to me in this book to to write about those people in my life that made a difference. Uh, some mm-hmm. family members, Trevor, but oddly, community people who I knew through other people as I was going through my life. And you know, I, I, I specifically wanted to point them out um, because the impact that they made in my life was so pivotal f- for so many reasons that still stick yeah. with me today. And it, it was, it was uh, I'm honored to be able to share my story with them and the major positive impact they had on my life um, in this book. And it was my way to say thank you genuinely say thank you i've said thank you to all of them of course but and i write about some mm-hmm. of those instances but um it, it was just again it, one of those things or a number of those things in life that happened to us right i do believe in angels uh trevor you mentioned that the other uh, a little bit ago um they are they were my angels uh, in many ways uh of just at the right time at the right moment in my life there they were Sometimes it just didn't even make sense that, that they were there, but there they were. And um, even to this day, and I think that just speaks to who I've become as a person, they're important to me in my life. I don't see them every day. I don't talk to them every day. This book allowed me, though, that opportunity to put in writing specifically why they were important to me and um, to say thank you. And uh, I'm so grateful I was able to do that. Yeah, and you did an amazing job at it. Yeah, it, I think as a, as a reader, it makes you think about all the people in your life. This is my experience that have also contributed, and that you wish you know you you give makes me want to take the time to thank everyone. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate how you say like you don't talk to these people every day. For some of them, you haven't talked to them in a while, and you're still reflecting back on the influence they had. I think it goes both ways to to both think about. I don't know. I feel like a little less guilty uh, that it, it you, maybe you don't have to keep up with people every day to still have a meaningful connection to them and think about them. And maybe the other way around, too. Right. Maybe it's hard to know people you've had an impact on that just because you never 
talk for years that they don't think of you. So that's just, that's a sweet thought. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. No, thank you. I, I will say um, one of those families that I – well, all of them have – they've read the book. I was able to get them the author copy version ahead of time. I just wanted to make sure they were okay with what I was writing and whatnot. All of them have, have, have been generous enough to say they loved it and, and so on. But Bill Cron is one of the uh, individuals that I write about, and he called me up. He's a very quiet gentleman, and – it was so moving that he called and he said, Steve, I never realized the impact that we may have had on your life until now. Sorry, I'm a bit emotional about it, but uh, it was just, uh, it said everything to me. Uh, it was just so moving for me to know that. And and mm -hmm. I, I was so grateful that he had recognized that at that point, right? It was just like, wow, that's, exactly what I wanted you to get out of this and understand and believe and know. And uh, so for me, it was just a wonderful opportunity to hear that. And, and another young uh, uh, lady that uh, I grew up with in the same community who knew the Berendrette family really well, um, she wrote me the other day. And again, her comments back from the book were just absolutely outstanding. She said, you know, we always kind of knew things were going on at the Berendrette house and the farm but never really knew how to pinpoint it. But um, you brought clarity to all that in a very respectful way. And also said that um, she, she just was so grateful for hearing, reading about those other individual families who helped me along the way and knowing that, that, that they did. And she of course knows who they are because they're in the same community. So I, that was really um, positive reinforcement about feeling that I've written it in the way that I intended to and it's had the impact mm -hmm. that I wanted it to have on others. So you touched on something I also wanted to ask and that is you tell a story, a specific story in the book uh, that highlights the nature of kind of the, the emotional and physical abuse that you were victim of in, in this family. And you were forced to go to school one day with a word yeah. written on your lips um, because of something you didn't say, but somebody thought you said it. But but you went to school and you wore this this word on your lips, and you were told that if you if you take this off at any point, I think his words were "I'll kill you." Yeah. And at school, the principal like you have an interaction with the principal. And the principal calls um, Dick and they have a conversation and you can hear parts of it from outside his office. And the principal says, this isn't right, Dick, this isn't right. And for me, that it struck something in my head that there must have been opportunities for people outside of the house to step in and, and try to improve the situation. Like there, was, there must have been points where it couldn't be ignored anymore. Like people uh, you've mentioned throughout the book and even just this interview that people have said, we know there was things going on, but we weren't quite able to pinpoint it. Why do you think it was so hard for people to step in and, and, and try to make that change and improve the situation? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I've thought about it for many years. Uh, I yeah. can only really say that um, I, I think at the time back then uh, we were much more, I'll use the word forgiving with 
um, things that were going on uh, behind closed doors, mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, those, yeah. you know, no one really wanted to get too involved. Um, abuse mm -hmm. was, uh, unfortunately, probably more acceptable than it is today, uh, both physical mm -hmm. and mental abuse. Um, and we're more aware of, of the negative impacts that physical and emotional abuse, if we use those as two examples, um, have today on, on, on not only a young child, but adults as well. And back in those times, I think in, in the seventies and eighties, it just, it, it just was, it was acceptable. Uh, unfortunately it was acceptable to not have to get involved or raise the issue with the authorities. Even, um, I write yeah. about, uh, Trevor, the children's aid society. Um, you know, I can't, I, I kind of wonder like, where were they? Right. I mean, it, I, I, yeah. I guess, you know, dropping us off there and saying, Oh, you're with a very, you know, influential family. Um, yeah. you guys are going to be fine. Right. But checking in, mm -hmm independent of our adopted parents being in the same room would have been probably a very different story. And we might've got some help at the time, but that never happened. Right. But um, yeah, I just yeah. think as, as awful as it sounds, the reality back then, it just was acceptable more than it would be today. Right. We would get, we would all get more involved knowing this kind of stuff's going on for sure. I know I would. Um, yeah. But uh, I just, unfortunately think it was just acceptable and people just didn't engage in that. It's, it's the point in the movie where I'm standing up and screaming at the TV, like, say something, do something. <laughs> you got to get this. You know, it's funny you say that because I've had others, uh, Trevor, say the same thing. In fact, <laughs> I've had some quite a few uh, comical comments about that very scene, if you will, about, you know, are you kidding me? Like, mm -hmm. like, well, you know, give me the phone number. I can go talk to them now sort of thing. Uh yeah, yeah, you know, again, I write about that specific instance. Uh, that alone, you're right. I mean, just just the whole the whole idea of writing filth across one's mouth, a child's mouth. Um, even even I think I think about this. Even if I had said that, not a good thing to say. Absolutely, but. Man, I don't think I could do that to my own child. There's no way the humiliation, and of course, with the humiliation was my reality, the terror of him killing me because I figured he would have. I mean, I was of that yeah. belief that you know he definitely would kill me if he said he would. He would do that. I've seen his his sort of physical wrath before. So, uh, yeah, crazy, isn't it? I mean, you, you kind of you kind of step back and say, how, how, how does that ever happen? How does a principal of a school mm -hmm. allow it? But, but again, I know my only consolation with the principal at the time is I felt so bad for him. There I was sitting outside of his office and here I'm feeling so bad for him, hearing him, you know, plead with Dick that this isn't right. And that, you know, he needs to do something about it and the frustration yeah. in his, his voice. And I, and I felt terrible for him. I thought, Oh my God, he's, he's dealing with him the same way I have to. And it was, but that's kind of the weird thing that came of that. Like for me, I remember so vividly sitting there feeling bad for him, right here. I'm the one with the filth mm -hmm. written across my mouth, trying to figure out how I'm going to uh, explain this to everybody. But, but, but what came out of that was a, an understanding again, it was an opportunity for me to figure out how am I going to get myself through this? I mean, how am I going to talk my way through this one? Right. And I, yeah. I just, 
I just used it initially. I think I, I wrote about it in the in the book about the bus driver who first saw me more before anyone before I even got to school, and I just said, "Oh yeah, I'm just I'm just doing an experiment, Mister Somerville." Um, yeah, I, I didn't even want to blame. I could have right there said, "Help me." Help me, you know, go beat up yeah. Dick or go do something, call the police. But I didn't, I, A, because I was yeah. more afraid. But um, I just, all that I could think about as a kid at that point in time was, okay, how am I going to talk my way through this one? And mm. it provided me a, a skill set there that I sort of grew into, I guess. Yeah, it's another example of the, I'll call it your heart, like the the fact that you were feeling for the other people. <laughs> And not yourself. Like, I, one, I'm I'm gonna not make this about Dick and Gwen. It's just an amazing thing that y- you didn't say something like that. I'm gonna try to make the bus driver feel better by saying it's an experiment. I'll try to make the people at school feel better by saying it's an experiment, and then and hopefully they don't feel too bad. Yeah. It's just it blows my mind to hear hear that that's what was going on in your head. Also, the strength to not let it uh, impact your worthiness, I guess. Like that's, uh, you You know, you, you say a few times that you yourself recognize that like feeling of I deserve more. Like I, this is not a reflection of who I am. It's a reflection of the people and the environment I'm in right now, not me. I, that, because that, that's the biggest thing that, could hurt somebody, right? If they internalize that and made it about themselves. Yeah, th- thanks for that. I, I, I think, um, yeah, I ha- I was able to, I read it about it several times. It's a major theme in my book about I deserved better. All through the young age in my adolescence and now adult life, I always knew I deserved better. How was it, How was I going to achieve that? Well, I had to learn to adapt into an environment of whatever that was and survive, right? And and we all have survival instincts. It's it's actually um, it's the success instinct that really takes over in order to get yourself from just surviving to succeeding. And 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 the only way that you can get to that success instinct, I say, I think I write about this, is is to believe in yourself and. That was an innate uh, blessing that I had is I always believed in myself. And mm-hmm. I will speak to this, uh, although it's my own, my brother's story. But in both cases, when I look at uh, Bill and Dan, um, they struggled more with that because of the physical and and i'm going to say even more to an extent of the emotional abuse that they went through they were not able to believe in themselves as much as they should have and consequently they became very angry and they went and took a different path in their life the same and as i write in the book their their god gifted abilities were so wonderful and unfortunately they didn't get a chance to really act on them and develop them further because they were so uh, emotionally abused to the point that they believed that Dick was right and Gwen was right and they didn't believe in themselves. And I'm ever grateful that I just somehow arrogantly, if you want to call it that way or whatever it was, blessed enough to know that I did believe in myself. And I was I was just going to uh, – it was just one of those things that I had learned. I write about in the book that um, – it was something that became expected. 
I just expected some other thing was going to happen to me with these, these, these adopted parents. And I knew at some mm -hmm. point it was going to change. At some point I would be in control. At some point I would mm -hmm. be able to make my own decisions and then get out of this mess. And, you know, I did. So, um, I just had to stay true to that belief. Um, but as you say, Angela, believing in myself was a really big one. And that's the difference between survival instinct and succeeding instinct is just mm. believing yourself. And that's the difference for those. So uh, thanks for pointing that out. I have a question about that. I You talk a few times th through your upbringing about noticing, let's say, signs of success, maybe, or material success anyway, seeing, a, I think it was your Uncle Morris had a Lincoln that stood out to you, or then later uh, visiting kind of horse breeders or maybe uh, chairmen of banks in Germany. These kinds of experiences seem to awaken a drive for you or motivation is that how would you describe that yeah um it it wasn't um it wasn't so much the material things although growing up i don't care who you are uh, seeing the lincolns and yeah. the, the chairmans of banks and the way they when i went to germany for the international uh, scholarship opportunity i mean that was just a wonderful experience that i just saw another side of life that I had never mm -hmm. seen before. And, and it, it was arrogantly, I, I kind of chuckle about this because all the successes I've seen in my life with whomever or whatever, I just happened to believe mm -hmm. that I could be there. I just happened to believe like, yeah, I, you know, why wouldn't I be there? I mean, there's no reason that I shouldn't be doing and, and having the same things that these people have. Um, as I, grew up and became more knowledgeable in my self-awareness. Um, it had a lot less to do with material items and a lot more to do with just me uh, living a lifestyle that I wanted to live um, without question more comfortably, right? And, and But the comfort level is more the balance of being happy with my life and continuing to to share that opportunity with others and and my life just becomes more and more that today and and that's predominantly why i want to speak i want to i want to speak to build hope for others that don't see it and and uh, allow them to feel what i felt allow them to believe that they can actually be that person have those things if that's what's important to you although i think i think anybody that genuinely learns to become a true leader the material items hey like i'll be the first i like to travel I like to go to nice places and have a decent car to drive but i don't have to have the best of everything and i don't have to be better than the next person i just have to be better than i was today so i think mm -hmm. as a true leader if we can if we can coach and mentor to that eventually any young person who wants to be a leader has identified that they want that has a has identified that they believe in themselves they'll get past the material things too and they'll just become what what i would say is the best leader that you know they can be to lead someone else and 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 then create new leaders you mentioned um kind of finding finding what you're good at when you moved as you went into high school you developed a strength of um public speaking uh which was supported was it junior high that you started public speaking or was it high school that you were that you really got into it junior high okay 
And and you had this support system from Grandma Berendra that you talk about in the book. It was for me, I felt relief that you had found this person that was gonna push you and and really polish this skill that you you guys have found together. And then as you grow up, you do, you, you talk about other skills as well and even soccer, you you talk about being a talented soccer player. I'm sure you're a talented hockey player, even though you don't give yourself credit for it. But probably much better than I am. I was going to say no. I can't. I can't, in all good uh, conscience, say that I was a good <laughs> hockey player. Uh, in fact, I was. I was a very. I was a late developer in almost everything, and that's what was so funny mm-hmm. about my brothers, who were so naturally talented when it became anything to do with athlete, athleticism, and I was not. And and I was the ankle burner on the hockey team uh but um now that you brought it up i'll share a quick uh cute story uh, when i was playing hockey and novice hockey of course um i i was the worst player on the team and um it happened we won the championship that year and the captain of our team who was the coach's son he was an extraordinary player um and he went on to be quite a good player uh he couldn't make the banquet where we celebrated the champion, you know, the whole, the whole year we were the champion. So that was cool. So he allowed me to wear the, the big C for captain on my Jersey. And he specifically uh. asked that I wear that, <laughs> you know, there, there again, there's at a young age where there's a leader, right? There's a, there's, he probably didn't even know it, but he created some confidence in me that was just, I mean, you can see the picture my, my smile's bigger than my stomach. And uh, when I, when I, cause there I am wearing the big C, but that story, came up again uh, on a Facebook uh, uh, item here a little while, not, not even a couple of weeks ago. And this picture showed up and it's like, remember, you you know, you came from Port Stanley, Ontario when and had this picture. Well, I had to give him kudos for that, right? Uh, uh, his name was Danny Bailey. And, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience to to be able to relive that again and remember the, how good I felt that, that he was able to do that for me. And, but no, I was a late bloomer in almost everything I, I attempted, uh, with, to do with athleticism anyway, soccer is, of course, mm-hmm. I speak to Dr. Uh, Rocco Basako, who was my soccer coach. And as I say, he taught me more about, uh, leadership and, and, um, self esteem than he did soccer, but through that process of mm-hmm. building my, confidence through those through those um, lessons that he taught me uh, I became a pretty decent soccer player um, but certainly uh, not at any level that someone would say oh we should get you into uh, provincial soccer or things like that so <laughs> I just wanted to clear the record that I wasn't that great uh, an athlete I was certainly far better at, at politics and um, mm-hmm. and speaking than it was anything so speaking of abilities you had this very amazing ability i have a good friend uh, my best friend who has i always say he could become friends with an ice cube like he he's such a kind and amazing soul that he attracts all these really amazing people into his life and both my wife and i as we were reading your book were kind of making comparisons we were like you have this ability to attract these supporters and these amazing people into your life did you see it that way did you see that it was you attracting these people or did you just chalk it up to luck like that these people would show up in your life like the coach for example and grandma b um the principal that you give credit to for really supporting you it's a little bit of both 
actually. I mean, again, mm. I, I just think some of these people just came into my life because the universe provided for that. But I, I will say, and I, I just said it when we started at the top of this, this session, um, being vulnerable uh, builds trust. And one of the things that I learned even at a very early age was I just opened up to everybody. I told them my story. Uh, I wasn't looking for a pat on the back. I wasn't looking for empathy. I just wanted them to know who I was very quickly to build that trust. And through that process is where I was able to get a lot of people who said, well, geez, we, were, we, we like you. Um, I've been told many times over my lifetime that I'm very likable, which I some days I don't think I am. But uh, for the most part, as long as most days I can be. But um, yeah, I, I think it's just because I was vulnerable and I knew that. I guess I did understand that fairly early that being vulnerable built trust and those people that trusted me were willing to help. And it was almost a defensive mechanism to survive because I yeah. knew in certain cases I did need to rely on people and I didn't know how else better to go about doing it but other than to be honest with them. Here's who I am. I'm laying it out on the floor here. Take it or leave it. Uh, and I was blessed enough that those people that I write about in the book were, were more than willing to um, help and be part of my life and get me onto my next path for whatever uh, way in which they could do that. Right. So. That's amazing. And I'd say like both you found these people that were able to help and you accepted the help, like you were able to accept them into your life. Even as you had such negative influences in your life, you were able to just separate that and say, yeah, these are negative. These are positive. I'm going to seek out the positive and kind of ignore the negative as much as I can. And yeah. I also like I this is maybe skipping ahead a bit, but I love the the time where you kind of needed support to um, be able to pay tuition later on in university and basically tried everything you could to do it on your own, really didn't want to seek help, but then realized there's no way you can do this in your own as you wanted um, with the resources you had. And then you kind of seem to strategically think about who do I ask for help? Like even when you did think about at reaching out to someone, you you didn't just, you were very thoughtful about who you asked. Yeah. So, you know, the good thing is coming from humble beginnings allows you to be humble in it near every circumstance. So um, I certainly have to admit I wasn't proud uh, to ask for help, but uh, I think, again, every good leader recognizes that you don't know and, and don't have all the answers and being able to be vulnerable enough to seek out assistance in whatever fashion that is, is important, right? And so it was probably thoughtful, as you pointed out, but probably also mixed with a little bit of strategy behind it. Mm -hmm. um, we always take the path of least resistance, and I certainly didn't want to go and ask um, certain people for that reason. Um, I didn't want to get turned down, so I wanted to go where I thought it made the most sense. And as you can read in the book, John and Diane Verbruggen, who were folks that I happened to babysit their boys, they probably recognized all that. They put me through babysitting those rough houses uh, where, where, uh, was worth the, the, the opportunity. But uh, for the most part, I think people that invested time and, in this case, some money in me, 
they knew it was a good investment. And it goes back to being uh, hard on my sleeve, vulnerable enough to share my story and, and, and honesty. And, um, and I made good on all those, as you can read in the book, where, where uh, you know, time to pay back that money was there. And, and even though he was happy to say, no, no, don't worry about paying me back, that wasn't going to happen. Because I would, then that, there is the strategy. It was critically important mm -hmm. to me that they do accept that money that they take it as we mm -hmm. agreed. It was a negotiation. It wasn't a hand me out. And that's what, that was probably yeah. the most important strategy that I wanted to go with at that point in time is thoughtful enough to recognize I needed help, but strategic enough to recognize that there was a negotiation here and I was going to live by it and I was going to do good by it. And I, I was grateful that I was able to do that. So, um, I love all your stories about negotiation, by the way, from like the chocolate bars in the high school to getting the job with the tobacco, like it's just progressively escalating all the time. Um, yeah, you seem to be very good at it. <laughs> when, how did you recognize that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I can only reflect on that now, which I will say this, and I don't mean any disrespect to the younger generation, but I think often not always but often there's so much entitlement today right people just feel that i'm asking for this and you should give it to me to me mm -hmm. growing up in an orphanage and knowing you have nothing recognizing that you have nothing to barter with or, or other than who you are led me to believe and understand that everything had to be somewhat of a negotiation and it has to be to this day i always tell my leaders that i uh, coach and mentor it's always got to be a win-win right? Um, there, there has to be a win-win. So for me, when you, when you suggested I'm thoughtful about how I went about asking for help, it, it, it included that process of, if I ask for this, what can I do for you? And, you know, in this case, it was uh, easy enough to say, you're going to lend me some money and I'm going to pay it back. Um, mm. it's as simple as that. And, and, um, to me, negotiation doesn't always have to be about business, right? Sometimes it gets very personal and, but it has to be a situation where um, it's a win-win unconditional love mm -hmm. as a parent. Of course, there's no such thing as a, it's a, it's a win-win just because of the nature of your relationship you have. But, but it is definitely um, not everything has to be a business negotiation, but there has to be some thought given to um, not, entitling yourself to say as soon as i ask it has to be a yes because i asked it's less gratifying when you get everything you want without any any decision any thought put into it or any sort of even effort and it just happens and i think those are the people that struggle in life because when it does come time to um figure it out for yourself or adapt to something that you've never seen before and succeed you're at a loss and that's where I mm -hmm. find it oddly enough, ironically enough, all those sort of things that myself or people that are in different circumstances that have been forced to adapt, forced to uh, find a way in which to make it work, find a way to succeed beyond survive. It is believing in yourself and recognizing that, you know, you owe it to others to, uh, to be fair and honest and, and, and make it a win-win strategy. So. We, we've spoken a lot about the strategy. Um, 
And there's so many amazing examples of as you grow up through your senior years in school, um, just the thought and the strategy that go that went into many different things that you achieved. Um, you became the president of two different school councils, one in your younger in school, and then again later on in college, um, both of which you talk about the strategy you used to do that. And whether it's the people that you put on your team in school that you knew would help you gain that popularity that you needed to become the, the president. In addition to the strategy, through all these stories, I also noted that you had this confidence about you. Like you knew, you knew you were going to be president. Regardless of what Gwen was saying at home, you knew that you were going to do it. And even, please tell me, Gwen, that I'm not going to do it because then I'll be, I'll have even more fire under me to go and do it. Do you think that confidence you had, was that something you grew up creating or was that something you had from the get-go? You know, I'll, I'll give credit to Dick and Gwen again. People say, why do you do that? But I think it's fair mm -hmm. to be fair. Mm -hmm. And, and um, mm -hmm. oddly, um, I guess I guess learning to survive. So I'll go back to that again, right? I mean, I had to learn to survive when I was a very young age in so many different environments. I had to, to, do, to adapt and survive. Part of that gives you the confidence because when you have one success, it leads to another success. And you just start building confidence and then you go back to that, right? You know, succeeding mm -hmm. over just surviving is all about belief in yourself. So I was building very early in my life a belief in myself because I had no one else to believe in. Um, I didn't have a nurturing parents that were believing in me. So hell, I might as well believe in myself. So mm -hmm. to some extent, I think that's where a lot of my confidence came from. But also to give Dick and Gwen some credit, the fact that they just said you can't do this or can't do that. I, I will I'll share this with you. There was one point in my life when I was going through this, I actually thought to myself, maybe, maybe they're telling me it this way because they want me to be arrogant enough or angry enough to succeed. And so I uh -huh. believe it or not, again, here I am always giving someone else the credit, but I, but I did that. I actually thought, okay, you know what? Sure. I'll play the game. And it became that for me. I, th I write about that in the book. It became a game to me. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, just... There were times when I was actually ha at odds with them. I thought, oh, yeah, please tell me I can't do something because I'm pretty sure I'm going to. And I was wondering what it was going to yeah. be next. They were going to say I couldn't do. So that <laughs> that in itself just built um, – I guess I was naive enough. Maybe I'll use the word arrogant enough. And when you have nothing – and I've said this to so many people. When you have nothing to lose – you have no fear. And so for mm -hmm. me, I had no fear at that stage in my life because I literally had nothing. I didn't even know where I was going, how I was going and, and getting there or anything like that. So I think the confidence just evolved from all of those sort of um, uh, emotions and, and trial and errors that I went through. Um, but, and, you know, I started, there I was, I had a pretty good job on the bank and, uh, you know, at a very young age, I, here I was, who did I think I was going to go start a company? But I thought I have nothing to lose. I, I really don't have anything to lose. Why wouldn't I? And I'm glad I did that. But, um, yeah, so a little bit of all that, I think Trevor, just, just all those sort of things that built over the years from, from, mm -hmm. uh, going through those various emotions, it just built my confidence, um, 
Yeah. Public speaking was a very big confidence booster for me. And again, it was all that positive reinforcement I got from the judges were there, other parents who saw them. I didn't have any parents that showed up. So they were, they were, I think, probably feeling bad, right? So they would come up, oh my goodness, mm -hmm. Stephen, you did so well. And I'm going, oh, this is great. I mean, yeah, yeah, I am pretty good, aren't I? So I started believing <laughs> in myself. And again, I, I, I said it a few times through this podcast. I mean, you know, survival instinct is, we all have survival instinct. The difference between survival and succeeding is believing in yourself. And mm -hmm. so my, my coaching and mentoring, or I'll say to anyone else, find ways to struggle and succeed. And in so doing that, you will find confidence is built and you will believe in yourself even more to succeed better. Um, I think that's probably just an easy way. I, I guess I would think, how would I do that in a life coach situation? I think I would do that. But if, I would, if there's any area that I would love to do, uh, speak to, to this more specifically, it is sort of the high school age uh, folks that I could really, this is a time of their life where they're, they're, they've got some independence. They're not really sure where or how they're going to get there, where they're going to go. But this is exactly the time to talk about believing in themselves. And, and it's mm -hmm. a, it's a constant reinforcement of that over and over and over until you finally get it right. And we're, we're all yeah. humans. We, some of us learn quicker than others, but, uh, there's no, there's no um, exclusivity on on believing in yourself, in my opinion, anywhere. So, it's amazing. I absolutely love the uh, what you just said. Like, it's, I'm going to quote you now: "Find ways to struggle," because that's so not a concept that's talked about. I think you, we, Trevor and I both have read this book. Um, Oh man, I forgot. Glennon Doyle. <laughs> uh, oh, but yeah. she has a she has a, a thing that she says to her kids, which is, we can do hard things. So it's just reinforcing this idea that because something is hard, it doesn't we can do it. Like we can do hard things. I think this is next level to say find ways to struggle. Like find hard things. Don't the things things are not things to get over and uh and then when you say it's been on my mind reading your book that the idea that you give so much credit to your hard upbringing to building your character and building who you are and the, i just imagine that what would you say to kids today that complain about things that are so small compared to what you went through like would you just like dismiss that <laughs> you have no idea how good you have it um i like the idea of find ways to struggle yeah, it's it's sort of speaks to getting out of our comfort zone, and we've all heard that, right, so mm -hmm. many times. Um, I think getting out of our comfort zone is really important, but I also think uh, in today's environment, it's important also though to do a bit of calculating about that sometimes, right? Sometimes getting out mm -hmm. of our com comfort zone can be too reckless, and and um, and I was like that. I'll be honest with you. I, I I was probably I I didn't see anything ahead of me that I couldn't do. Um, the only thing that was holding me back was to have the MBA that I didn't have, couldn't afford, uh, wanted it so bad and couldn't afford, you know, the, the, that level of education. But, but, uh, so what did I do? I had to adapt and find other means of developing strength in not having that MBA that I, cause I was competing with, that's all I was competing with at the bank at the time. And so I had to find another way to say, Oh, you don't have an MBA, but, and I'll share a quick story with you. I, I won't, I won't name names, but uh, just this week, an individual that read my book 
He happens to be uh, high up in the bank. But he said, when I, I also did public speaking when I was in school, and and um, I really enjoyed it, and I, I was good at it. And he said, but when it came time for me to be president of school, I declined doing it. He says, I thought I should focus on my marks, and that's what I did. And I didn't do the president of the school like you did and everything else. And this is what he said to me. Man, did, did I ever regret that? Because when I got out of school, I had the marks. I went it took me 17 job interviews to get a job because here's what they kept saying to me. Well, you got pretty good marks. What else? And, and mm. I, I, it was wonderful to hear that only yesterday. This is the story that I, I was listening to yesterday and he, he was telling me this. And, and I said, you know, that's really interesting because for the, for the opposite reasons, or maybe the same reasons, I did the opposite as you. I actually didn't. Mm -hmm. I knew my marks were average. I knew I couldn't afford university or certainly an MBA. So I went to college and said, what else do I have to do to bring me up to, to, to the level of, of who I'm going to be competing with? So found – and this, this gentleman is a senior vice president in the bank. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. I, I, it really validated my decisions that I had made and, and, and the strategy, Trevor, that I used to get me where I needed to get. And those are the sort of things that I write about in the book, right? And I hope young individuals that – read my book will read that and say oh you know maybe i do need to put some strategy into this how how i want to get there and it doesn't take a lot um you may fail and you know we all know that failure lends itself to success because we we learn from failure to hone our processes and develop more sustainable solutions and and i think that's uh, that's a good lesson for all of us no matter what age but certainly as we start to look at where do I want to build my career and how do I want to do this? Well, it, it's really just, it's okay to fail because uh, you're going to learn so many lessons through it. And, and Angela, to your point, that is the struggle that you, we, we find mm -hmm. ourselves in that actually develops this good character. So it was on my list and you touched on it. The, the story of you be getting your first job uh, out of college at uh, the Bank of Montreal. Could you walk us through kind of a very quick summary of how that all happened and the strategy that went into, because you mentioned you are now competing with people who went to Queens type universities and they had MBAs and they were applying for the same jobs you were. And you found ways extracurricularly, if that's a word, to, to spruce up your resume to compete with these people. Um, yeah, that was a wonderful time in my life. I mean, there again, you talk about being self-confident and believing in yourself. That was about the pivotal moment in my life that I realized that, well, I mean, I can achieve this. And when I went, again, the strategy behind going back to school was because I decided it was there, there I was going to go for me. These are the reasons I'm going to go to school, and this is the outcome that I want to have. But, yeah, when it came yeah. time to look for a job at the bank, I mean, it was interesting because I, I write about it. Don Orth was one of the deans at the college, and he said, oh, Steve, you know, you're a great guy and all that, but, geez, you know, they're, they're just not going to hire you because you don't have an MBA. And I said, oh, geez. So I just kind of thought about it for a day or two, and I thought, oh, you know, I don't I don't probably really agree with that. I'm going to take a stab at it. How, what, what's the worst that can happen? They're not going to hire me. So that's yeah. kind of when I just – quietly did my own resume up and back in those days of course it wasn't as easy as it is today with on a computer but I, I managed it i actually had a fella uh, i can't remember his name now but i said i need your help to put a resume on this computer and get it cranked out so i put the resume together but 
when when I put the resume together, right, it's it's pretty basic. I don't really have any education, or I don't really have. I have college, and I knew I was going to graduate because I was doing quite well. But but I I didn't have a lot else other than that, right? Some jobs working in the tobacco farms and stuff like big deal, right? So, but what mm-hmm. I did have was I knew the strategy behind running for president two years prior was just that, right? It was, I will need this down the road when I apply for a job. So I was, look. that's one thing I've always been grateful for. I, I always look ahead. Sometimes my wife gives me uh, the gears about it because she's, <laughs> you're looking too far ahead. And, and I tend to like to do that I know what I'm and, and then strategize how I'm going to get there. But uh, visualization yeah. is a very big thing. And I write about visualization in my book at this point in time, because I was, a, yeah. I was visualizing myself working at the Bank of Montreal. I visualized it. I could see it. I dreamed about it. And through that process, I had enough confidence to end maybe arrogance. But I put that resume together and I talked about my being the president. I talked about all the extracurriculars I had. And even at that age, I was doing volunteering in the community. And that's one thing I'll just quickly say. Volunteering is a big part of leadership, right? And I've done it from a very early age. I started doing it probably at 16 years old, mostly because I wanted to pay back. I never forgot all the goodness that people gave me and I wanted to give back and I continue to do that today. And I certainly coach to it as well. But there I was, I, I got the resume done, had to be perfect. And I think I, I think I write about it says on, a, on a, a cold evening, the snow was falling and I still remember it vividly. And I, and I drove myself because it was too far away to walk, but I drove myself to the, 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 I don't know if we still have, but the mailbox out, uh, out in the middle of nowhere. This was this was a farming community. Anyway, found the mailbox, put it in there, and said a prayer. And I was waiting forever to hear back. And everyone else in in, in the college was now that clo- getting close to uh, the end of the season, and they were all talking about taking interviews and getting jobs. And I still haven't heard from them. So, anyway, long story short, I called them. I said, "Hey, I haven't heard from you because I was about ready to go accept another job." But I really wanted this one. And she said, oh, no, someone's going to call you in a few days. I said, well, I'm going to give them to this day if they call. Otherwise, I'm going to go to go to this other job. They called. And that was that was the end. of it. But the, the, the story I write about going to downtown Toronto for me, I actually just talked about this this week, sharing the story with somebody else. And I must have looked so silly. Me, uh, this young kid in a pinstripe suit, downtown Toronto, I totally looked lost. I'm looking up like I've never seen these buildings in my life before, which probably is true, and uh, looking totally out of place until one gentleman said, oh, are you lost? And I, oh, no, 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 I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I know exactly what's going on. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was scared, scared out of my wits getting ready for this interview. But mm-hmm. um, the point to the interview was this, and it has everything to do with believing in yourself and have the confidence. But um, at the end of the day, I knew I had a job because it just – Everything just clicked. All the questions they asked, but it really came down to, to to that important that important thing, which is all about people, right? And this individual that was doing the interview, his name was Stephen White. Still remember it? And um, we just found common ground, and we talked more about each other and ourselves and our lives than we did about the job. And I think what he was trying to do is to see, do you relate to people? Because that's at the end of the day who you're going to be dealing with is the customers. And uh, and that was just a wonderful opportunity for me because at the end of the day, I ended up with pretty good marks. I think I ended up on the dean's list. But but that wasn't really what mattered to him. What really mattered was who was I, how did I relate to people, and 
yeah, you've got the job. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. I, I really enjoyed it that time of life. It's amazing. And, and there's one part I wanted to highlight is what came after that is that like before this interview, um, the bank of Montreal may not have really looked at colleges for, for their new hires coming out of university or college. And then after they met you, they started going to your college and they reached out to you and said, who else do you know that, that is as great as you basically that we could interview. Um, and it kind of, that happened for years to follow that you kind of, you changed the, you didn't do this just for yourself, but you also changed the status of the college that you were at, which I found absolutely amazing. Thanks, Trevor. I, I appreciate that. It, it was a very proud moment in my life to know that. It was like, wow, this is this is great. And and you're right. It, at that point, you realize that it isn't about you. It's about what you could do for others down the road. And there were several that they hired afterwards. Um, um, mm-hmm. In fact, I just one of the fellows that read my book uh, wrote me last night, and he had said I too went to the bank, and uh, so that was kind of cool. You tell a story in your book. Uh, it's the Canadian Tire story, and this. This struck me, actually, because I, as a young high school student, I worked at Canadian Tire, oh. and I uh, I could see the stairs that you described going up to the mezzanine level of Canadian Tire, um, because I had to go up there to get a job. And I think I'm almost positive every Canadian Tire across Canada is designed the exact same way. They all look the exact same. But I I was right in your shoes as you were going up the stairs to talk with the with the owner of this Canadian Tire store that you were told not to do. You were directed by your supervisor that please don't do that. It's above your pay grade. And once again, Steve said, "Thank you for the encouragement. I'm going to go do it." <laughs> um, can you just really briefly walk us through that and and what it turned into in the end that that fateful day? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, against my better judgment, I didn't listen to my boss. And, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't listen to our bosses. But, you know, leadership is also meaning that the leader doesn't know everything. And I'm the first leader that I will tell you, I don't know everything and nor do I should I have to know everything. So I guess I took a little bit of that and said, well, he's probably got a really good point. He, he is probably right that I don't know enough to go and speak to you know, this major Canadian tire store owner operator, but, um, what the hell, it was just one of those things as I write in the book that it just, I just kept walking by it every day. And every day I got more confident about why, why I should go and speak to him. And so that's exactly what I ended up doing. Um, the good news was, yeah, as I write about it, I mean, he accepted my offer to come in and talk to the owner, which at which point I said my heart was pounding out of my chest because at that point I thought, oh, mm-hmm. I am going to have to say something and I don't really don't know what I'm going to say. But again, that instance was very telling because it was all about people. And this this owner, um, he said right to his wife, this guy reminds, who does this guy remind me you of? And he says, you. And I think that's the only reason I got where I got because he saw this young kid who came in and had enough gumption to actually ask for his business, and that was enough for him to at least explore it. Long story short, yeah. we ended up getting the business. I, of course, didn't write the whole deal up because I didn't know what I was doing. I was pretty green at the time. and But I did get full credit for it, and I received the, uh, the award of excellence from the Bank of Montreal at that time in a very early stage of my career, which didn't 
it certainly helped me you know, move move along. And more to that point, that that evolved into him calling all of his Canadian Tire friends. I think it, it turned out to be the what is now today the Canadian Tire franchise financing program. Um, I don't I don't know much about it anymore. I haven't been there that many years, but it, it was the first of many. Um, I guess. Canadian Tire Stores that got financed through Bank of Montreal that continues to, I, I believe they have one of the best uh, programs out there in the market. So uh, I'll, I'll maybe unofficially claim to fame on that one, but uh, I don't know, someone might, <laughs> might argue that it's not deserving, but um, it really came down to, as I say, just the confidence that I had and, and I just felt that it was the right thing to do. And, and I knew uh, Angela, you talked about it a little while ago or mentioned it. Uh, I just knew it was going to work. I just, I just had this feeling that I, whatever's going to happen here is going to be good, and of course it was. It's amazing. I loved that story. Great story. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I also like. I think it highlights that balance that you seem to have. That's very like strategic in your thinking, as we've said a few times. Uh, you're making choices about where you want to go, and I think you mentioned over time they became more about where you want to go rather than where people are telling you you can't go or where you think you know you need to show other people but making choices and trusting the universe a little bit like letting that guide you even the way you describe yeah. like the moment you decided to go into the store happened to be perfect timing but it was like something told you that this was the good time to go right that's pretty cool yeah magical yeah. i <laughs> yeah and i've been i i write about this i I've, I've always felt blessed uh, that way. Uh, I've always been a believer in, I've always been spiritual. Um, uh, as I get older, I probably more spiritually universe centric than I am anything, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I've always, I think, as I, I think I write about that in the book where I, I, I said, I think, I think God knew he owed me for what he did, uh, when I lost my mom at an early age. And I think in some fashion, I like to think anyway, right or wrong, that that was, that's what I got out of it, uh, that I was able to have the universe connection there that sort of watched over me. Um, and yeah, I have to believe so many wonderful things that happened in my life. Um, it, my wife calls me Forrest Gump. She, you know, when you kind of know that story a little bit, I kind of chuckle about that. Yeah. But uh, I, I was not nearly as talented as he was in the movie, I think. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's just it's just always about that sort of universe belief that uh, it's all going to be okay. It it makes me think of a as I was reading the your book with my partner, I mentioned to her like you're so good at strategizing. You have so much strategy behind everything and she said to me, um, yeah, he does, but I think it's more in like he knows when to take inspired action. And now you've just mentioned that 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 you receive a piece of inspiration and you you act on it and you know when it's inspiration and when it feels good and when it's the right decision and and you go after it and i think that's inspiring just to know know the difference between maybe what you're doing out of fear or what you're doing out of inspiration yeah and you know some some people that lead and coach and mentor will say don't ever be the one that's you know aim shoot fire take time Mm -hmm. step back think it through, then approach that. Um, I think both. I think sometimes it just requires you to be more uh, strategic and think it through. And then sometimes, no, sometimes you have to strike while the right time 
is there. And it, if it doesn't work out, what happens? Well, we failed. But through that failure, as I said earlier, what, what becomes of that? Well, it's a lesson. And, and then mm-hmm. maybe next time you will, you will take more time to think it through before you aim and shoot. But um, uh, I think it, it's a little bit of both, right? And strategy for me becomes more about everyone else around me than it does just myself anymore. Um, and, and I think mm-hmm. that's important. I, I think we're not always there. Like strategy, if we're young and we, we got to strategize where my next move is, that, that's, that's pretty much all you unless you've got a family to say well okay i'll do that but i guess i can't you know live in tahiti because what about my wife and kids so of course that's something you have to think about but 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 at the end of the day as we get older and more it becomes less important that your leadership is about what what's going to end up being for you and has everything to do with what leadership skills are you going to be able to share and impact someone positively around you yeah, you mentioned a few times like the, the sphere of influence, like growing your sphere of influence. And it feels like writing this book is probably even further expanding that sphere of influence that, that you have beyond what you can kind of accomplish in a day. The people you can talk to in a day, you now have a much bigger audience. Yeah, it, it is, in fact. Which I could say you deserve. <laughs> your message deserves. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, and that is the excite, exciting part. I probably, I probably haven't been this excited in so many years because you're exactly right, Angela. Like, I feel like this book is going to be able to reach, reach enough people in enough different circles to have a positive impact on enough to build that sphere even larger. It's just going to take time, right? And and some of that time will be for me to be able to go out and do motivational speaking, which I really want to do. I'm really excited about that, those prospects and, you know, leadership training and coaching. Um, and just, just, I'm enjoying it. It's almost feel guilty. I'm enjoying it too much, but I, I'm so excited about how many people can this reach and just knowing that it's touched enough people to make a difference. Wow. That's powerful. It's, it's, it's powerfully humbling. Yeah. It's so inspiring is the right word um Mm -hmm. you tell a story in the book towards the end where you go and approach dick and you say you that you'd like to invite him to be part of your your family uh and be a grandfather in your family and um did you did you receive closure at all through that conversation and did a part of you know kind of the way that conversation would go yeah i i would say that i didn't know how it would go. I was certainly hopeful for coming out and having enough vulnerability to ask for mm-hmm. him to be part of my life. Um, I was, I guess I was thinking that the answer would have been, yes, we're good to this. Let's, let's retrench and do this. Um, yeah. So I was, I was um, shook up by his response to be fair. Um, yeah. I was hurt and um but probably within a few hours of reflecting on it after I left, I wasn't surprised. Um, mm-hmm. But I felt I felt terribly sorry for him. I, and I think I wrote that in yeah. the book that I, I felt sorry for him not being able to experience all the us Pearson kids, if you will, would have provided him in his life. And he was very much a, a left alone when he died. Um, so it was really mm-hmm. too bad. Um, but when I left there, um, I have to admit I was angry. Um, 
and all, all kinds of yeah. different emotions. But I had made the decision that I had done my best to try to make amends. I thought I owed him yeah. that out of respect. And to the extent that he came back with what he did, I had made the decision right then and there. I think I wrote, I can't remember the, the words I wrote, but uh, specifically, but if I go to it, it, it was, um, it was done. I had left the man yeah. I once called dad. I think I wrote, I, I left the man I once called dad um, once and for all. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you just, at the end of the day, you just, I couldn't put myself through any more torture. I think I, I respected myself enough to say enough. Yeah. Um, I don't need to have that constant negativity in my life anymore. And mm-hmm. I was able to move forward from that. That was another chapter in my life that I was decided to say, okay, now I'm going to move this way um, because of that. And um, as much as it was painful, it was necessary. Yeah. As the reader, I felt relief isn't the word, but I felt I was glad that that happened and that you, that it was a very clear close on that topic now. And now we can go forward. Right. Forgiveness is in the title of the book. So I think we should cover kind of more directly. What what does forgiveness look like for you in this scenario? What has the journey been like? Because sometimes it comes across as if you always forgave. Like it was, it was, you're, you're so fair. And I think you keep bringing up that you want to be fair, which is interesting considering how unfair the situation was to you that you were so focused, maybe because of it on fairness and being fair to even people who hurt you in, in very strong ways, or, you know, we're not there for you. Who should have been, how, what was the forgiveness journey? Like it's, yeah, it's been a long journey. Uh, I will say, um, I, I wasn't so forgiving initially. Right. I mean, as I was, um, all of these years that passed, I think, uh, you know, I write about the fact that I was angry at Dick and Gwen, but I was also angry at Mike, Cheryl and Susan, because they were the Baron red equation, right. Part of that whole family, their own mm-hmm. children. And mm-hmm. it, my forgiveness came in stages. Um, and probably was a good thing that it came in stages because it meant more to me at that stage and then all culminating to the end to where I am today, which is freedom. And, uh, but as I got older and I reflected upon, you know, the situation and, you know, the first forgiveness came to my adopted siblings because I realized finally so many years later that, Hey, why am I so angry at you guys? I mean, you didn't do anything wrong. They were they were in the same boat I was, right? And what a wonderful feeling that was, Angela. Like I I was I was free at that point, but only partly, right? I was still very angry, um, more so at Gwen than I was Dick, and probably because I just, to be fair, had a better relationship with Dick in some measure, and he was passed since. So it was, I guess you know how can you be angry at somebody that's past but but the forgiveness of the my adopted siblings was really pivotal for me because it allowed me to think even broadly then further to say okay what next and um Mm -hmm. that led me to reflect further on the whole thing like i forgave myself and you might say well what are you talking about i forgave myself for allowing what happened to happen I forgave myself to um, 
from from being the person that I was, that was uh, this individual that was terrible with relationships, that 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 always caused the, due to a sense of abandonment, un, unnecessary uh, friction and and troubles. So I forgave myself for a lot of that, as odd as that may sound. But that was important because it allowed me to find a path of freedom, hence the, the title. Mm-hmm. So um, at the end of the day, I'll be honest with you, the whole forgiveness is freedom. The ultimate freedom for me only came when I finished writing this book and the last chapter. I was working my way mm-hmm. through all of this memory and all of these emotions and everything else. And I had forgiven the, my adopted siblings and all that. But I still had not really forgiven Dick and Gwen. And only until I literally wrote this book and finished that chapter, the book was actually going to be called something different. And when I came to the last chapter titled Forgiveness is Freedom, I, it, was, it was just a wonderful feeling of setting myself free. It was like, yeah, in so forgiving you both, I have set us all free including me mm-hmm. selfish or unselfish yeah. it was just important that all and it was oh my goodness it was such a feel i i I probably, I probably cried i think i did uh, through that whole whole chapter because i was able to finally set myself free and i'm going to say this it's not important gwen is still alive uh i'm not close with her um but i don't want to heart this this is about me this freedom was for me mm-hmm. i don't know if she forgives or is free or not. And, you know, that's not for me to decide, right? All I can do is forgive Mm -hmm. her and Dick for what happened. And if she chooses not to acknowledge that, that's fine too. All I know is I'm now freer by having done that. And it allows me then to move forward again, right? In positive, because all this kind of stuff with anybody, that's one thing that we all have to learn is that when we all go through difficulties, harboring grudges and ill feelings and anger just, keep us away from so much other great things. Um, our focus is lost. Our ability to uh, relate to other people and communicate the same is lost uh, because we're so caught up in this, right? And I had been there for many, many years of my life. So it was just a wonderful sense of freedom for myself. And that's really how it kind of evolved in stages over time. But when that final piece came into the puzzle, man, was that it was wonderful for me. So powerful. It's a good example of people always say you don't forgive people to set them free. You forgive people to set yourself free, to release yourself from that. Yeah. And I needed to do that. Yeah, I can imagine. I have uh, my last question. I love that your mom is continuously there in the book. So even though her passing is talked about very early and it happens early in the book, Clearly, her spirit and the love that she gave you and the memories that she gave you carried you through a lot of this hardship and, and success in your life when you kept thinking back on your mom and how she would be proud. I, I love that part of the book and how it ends with this message that she left you uh, was part of what you are dwelling on. And, and this, I guess it was like humor is an amazing coping mechanism and it's great for the people around you because it improves their lives as well. But her message was very interesting, very deep, I thought, to say not everything is funny. To such a young child, like it's so insightful. I was just yeah. wondering what what did you take from that? And maybe it's changed over time, but clearly it impacted you. Yes, it did. Um 
it, it impacted me for years, right? And, and you're right. It did have different meanings to me as I grew older. I mean, I read that letter as I write in the book, I don't know how many times in my life, and I read it always at the lowest points of my life to get me through it. Uh, but I, I, you know, when I first realized or thought I realized what she was trying to say, I was upset because I was always this funny guy. I was the guy that was cracking jokes to make other people feel better. And, and then I'm reading this one day and I'm thinking, oh, Maybe I'm not supposed to do that. Maybe that's what she's telling me, and I'm not supposed to. And I was really upset about that, right? And uh, obviously, that wasn't the case. I think what her message to me was to for me to realize that this was a very uh, not funny situation of her passing, and I needed to learn to um, deal with it and understand it. And mm-hmm. um, I, I guess that's what mm-hmm. I took from it. But to your point, it's very insightful if. Um, and I won't speak to my other siblings in, in that letter, but, um, yeah, it's amazing how she got us all so right at that age. Like mm-hmm. a mother knows you hear about this all the time and it's like, wow, did she ever, and just at my, my brother Bill's recent passing. And I, I went up to say a few words. I used her letter as the basis of what I wanted to share and, and, and what she wrote about him was so unbelievably uh, insightful and accurate. And I went through sort of her words to him and what they meant throughout his life. And wow, I'm, even after I was done, I'm going, my goodness, you know what? That's the same for all of us. So um, so initially, yeah, I was, I was a bit upset about it. But yeah, I didn't understand what it meant at a younger age. But as I got older, I realized how insightful it was for me. And it didn't mean that I couldn't be funny. It didn't mean that I shouldn't laugh again. If anything, that's exactly what she was trying to say. Not everything is funny, um, but it's okay mm-hmm. to be funny. So, um, yeah, that letter was a, a – I, I debated on putting that letter in the book. It was almost too open and too vulnerable. But uh, I spoke to all my siblings about it before I did that, and we all agreed that um, it belonged in the book. And uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad it's there now. The hardest part of this whole book for me was to um, – and Marcy and Alex challenged me to write a letter back to my mother. That, that's not something I wrote to her back then. Wow, that was tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was short yeah. for a purpose because I couldn't go anymore. I, I barely got through that. So, uh, but it really forced me to talk about this whole working writer's co. I mean, talk mm-hmm. about the cathartic journey. I mean, I really dug deep on that and I, and I probably could have gone on and on and wrote another whole book around it, but, um, I had mm-hmm. to cut it off at one point, but it, boy, it was, uh, I realized how fresh, oddly as that sounds 51 years later, how fresh it still is mm-hmm. sometimes. It's just amazing. But, uh, what a wonderful gift to be able to write her that uh, letter back. And I'm glad I did it. I'm glad you did too. And I would have been mad at you if you didn't include the letter. So I'm glad everyone agreed. Uh, yeah, no, that's so interesting. I could, I could actually ask myself the same question if you guys had talked about it and decided to put it in. And that's it. Again, like the book, it feels like a gift to share this experience and to grow the impact beyond what you and your family have yeah. experienced. The, um, the back cover of my book, you can see some of her letter actually was in a very beautiful opaque blue paper, which I have. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wanted that on the book. So the, the blue pages you see kind of floating around on the back book cover are, uh, is her letter, actually. So it's kind of neat. Oh, amazing. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
And that was my daughter's suggestion, by the way. She's very smart. Yeah, I thought that was a really good uh, idea she had there. So I'll have to give her credit for that. I love it. Um, I only have one last question, and it was it's maybe it's two parts. I'll ask one first, and then a more general version of the same question. But what would you say to someone who's in the process of healing from an abusive relationship or situation? A lot. <laughs> Short answer is a lot. I would say a lot to them. Yeah. Um, every circumstance is different, right? Um, so mm-hmm. um, before I said anything, I guess the, the honest answer would be I would listen even more. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really critical. It's important to understand that those people that are hurting, those people that are in a vulnerable situation, sometimes, and male, I'll just say, Trevor, you and I are males, we typically want to solve problems more than we listen. Mm-hmm. And I write about that in my book. That was probably one of the big problems I had in my, my marriage, um, yeah. was not listening enough and just trying to solve the problem. Um, so I think it's important to, what would I say? I would first listen a lot and and reflect and then use some mm-hmm. of my own. I just did this actually this week um, for somebody and um, I was able to use some of my own experiences to share with them to at least consider. And that's important, right? Again, there's okay. nothing I can say to do this or do that. It's always inviting yeah. them to consider um, this possibility mm-hmm. or that. Um, but underpinning everything, I think it's important to the same old adage we all hear is that it will never last because ultimately you're in control. And mm-hmm. in life, I've learned that we actually can be faced with so many challenges every day. Um, and it's really how we interpret it as to what the outcome is going to be. And we are in control of that. And and so it's important, I think, for us to be able to just recognize that it's not going to last forever. And it can be better, but you have a part in that. You can't, it's not enough to say, I just need you to fix this. It's how can I fix that situation, right? right. And and I think that's where yeah. a lot of people uh, tend to fall apart because they're looking for someone else to to fix it for them. What you do have is is a support group that you may not be aware of that really is important that they dig deep. And, and to our discussion earlier, it doesn't have to be family. It can be mm-hmm. just, you know, people that you're aware of, of, but talking about it is important. And I, it's uh, another big thing I use in coaching is communication is everything. And mm-hmm. sometimes just talking about it. And this happened to me actually this week with someone just allowing her to talk it through made all the difference. It just totally made all mm-hmm. the difference. And the next day today, I just offered some suggestions that might be of, of use to her for the situation she was in. So, um, so I, again, I feel very confident in being able to help someone in that regard because of my background, but I'm also uh, yeah. aware that I don't have all the answers and sometimes certain mm-hmm. very difficult situations just require something other than myself and, and it's out there. So just steering them to the right resources available for that. It's an amazing answer. Unexpected, but I think I expected that from you. So, um, okay. I guess in general, was there was there anything else that you maybe wanted to say that I haven't had a chance to, it, whether it's to younger folks or people 
um, endeavoring to be leaders. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to say that you haven't had a chance to yet? No, I think I think we've covered everything. You guys were phenomenal uh, in terms of the the questions. Um, certainly, being mm-hmm. able to help others, it it shifts the focus. And what does it do? It yeah. builds it builds the value that you're needed. And when you're needed, you feel self worth. And when you have self worth, you build confidence. And when you have confidence, you succeed by believing in yourself. So all I guess all the messages we've talked about today kind of culminate into all that. But that's the message that I would leave that I think if someone listens to this podcast, it's not about the book. It's about the, the lessons that we all learn through our day-to-day lives. And, and hopefully through that process, we can tr- transfer our, our uh, experiences to someone that needs it. Amazing. That's very nicely put. It really does sum up Thanks. a lot of what we discussed. Thanks. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I know you, you continue to hear this, and I think it's something that needs to be said over and over and over again. You are an absolutely incredible person. Um, I'm so grateful to have met you and to have read your book. Um, and I'm so grateful for you to be so open to share your story with the world. And even just coming on this podcast, I think you're an amazing person. And I hope that I get to, to talk to you again in the future. Thank you very much. Your book is called Forgiveness is Freedom, How I Overcame Life Challenges to Thrive and Succeed and How You Can Too. And if if our listeners read one book this year, please make it this book. I think it's the lessons in there are incredible. It's so well written. Um, so kudos to you for for opening up your life for us. Yes. Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much.